This week on the show, we're using FreeBSD's package audit and looking a little bit more what it can do. We look also at a 20-year-old bug that went to Mars in LZO. Oops. FreeBSD on the Slimbook usage report. LNDB FreeBSD kernel core dump support for more systems. Steam on OpenBSD. Cool but obscure X11 tools. And more in this week's episode of BSD Meow. BST Now, episode 437, Audit That Package, recorded on the 29th of December 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show in various ways, check out our Patreon page over at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Heuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to a fresh episode. We are recording still in the old year. You probably listened to this in the new year. Uh, so, But nevertheless, we have BSD news around the BSD universe. Uh, this one is from Clara Systems blog using FreeBSD's package audit. Yeah, so the article covers a bit of everything. Uh, firstly, how to use the FreeBSD-version command to check uh, what you're currently running. Uh, you're currently installed the kernel in userlandr and also what you're actually running. Uh, so you can tell if, you know, FreeBSD update has installed a new kernel, but you haven't actually rebooted onto it yet, and so on. Uh, this can solve problems where the uname-a command doesn't necessarily report uh, a change, because, uh, you know, if you patch only, uh, say, the, the vulnerability was only in OpenSSL, and that gets patched, that doesn't update the kernel. And so uh, uname-a would tell you that you didn't have the patch yet when uh, FreeBSD-version would report that you, in fact, do. So that's useful to know. They also talked a bit about how to read the FreeBSD release information page and how to get a list of what uh, releases are supported until when and when the end of life is going to be uh, and so on. And then there's a section about actually reading the FreeBSD security advisors, looking at the sections like background that just gives you some background and the problem description, how it impacts your system, what you might be able to do to work around it uh, until you can install the patch, how you install the patch, and then the details of that, and then references to any uh, external resources and so on. And how you can use the FreeBSD-Update tool to update your system, uh, including if you use the FreeBSD-Update cron command, uh, you set that up in cron tab, and it will sleep for a random amount between zero seconds and an hour, so that everybody uh, who cron tabs FreeBSD update to run at 2 a.m. doesn't hit the server at the same time. Uh, and also even just your own network doesn't get overloaded with all your servers <laughs> checking in at the same time. Uh, yeah, too much. And they show some example output of what a uh, FreeBSD update might look like if you were updating a 13.0 system to 13.0-P4 and then how you can install those. But then it's kind of the topic of the article is looking at the third-party packages when you install things like web servers on FreeBSD. Uh, so there's uh, a subcommand, pkg audit, uh, which will download a vulnerability database and compare all of the installed packages on your system against the known vulnerabilities, letting you know that, oh, you know, you have Chromium 92.0.4515 installed, which is vulnerable to these three known vulnerabilities, uh, which means you can now update to the newer version if it's out, or if it's not, you know that maybe you want to not use Chrome for uh, until the update is released or 
work around it or whatever. Uh, and those vulnerabilities all have uh, links that can tell you more about it so you can make your own decisions. But uh, works really nice when combined uh, with the capital R switch, which allows you to output data as UCL or JSON or compact JSON or YAML, uh, so that you can even feed this into your monitoring system. So your monitoring system becomes aware every time there are known vulnerabilities in software you have running. Oh yeah, very useful. And then there's a section on the Rust cargo packages. These are new to me. Is that only for Rust users or specific ones? Ah, yes, this is for uh, Rust cargo packages. Yeah, okay, that's fine. So I'll go ahead with the next article, which is a 20-year-old bug that went to Mars. Oops. Yeah, this one I found uh, amusing. You know, it, it's not new. It's from 2014, and I remember seeing it get fixed in ZFS way back then. Um, but this has a lot more details on it and, you know, the part about it going to Mars, which is the part that's really interesting. Uh, but, you know, they say, it's rare that you come across a bug so subtle that it can last for two decades. Uh, but that's exactly what happened with LZO, the Limpel Ziv Oberhumer uh, compression algorithm. Originally written in 1994, Marcus Oberhumer uh, designed uh, a sophisticated and extremely efficient compression algorithm so elegant and well-architected that it outperforms uh, Zlib and Bzip by four or five times uh, on the decompression speed. As a result, Marcus has made a successful and well-deserved career out of optimizing that code for various different platforms. I was impressed to find out that his LZO algorithm has gone to the planet Mars on the NASA Curiosity rover, um, which just celebrated another Martian anniversary. Um, because of the speed and efficiency of the algorithm, LZO has made its way into both proprietary and open source projects around the world. It's, all, uh, it's lived in automotive systems, airplanes, and other embedded systems for over a decade, uh, or probably two decades at this point. Um, the algorithm has even made its way into projects you might use on a daily basis, like OpenVPN, mPlayer2, libav, uh, ffmpeg, the Linux kernel, and the Juniper Junos, plus many, many more. And in the past few years, LZO has gained traction in file systems as well. LZO can be found in the Linux kernel for ButterFS, SquashFS, and JFFS2, and UBFS. Uh, a recent variant of the algorithm called LZ4 uh, is used for compression in ZFS on Solaris, Lumos, FreeBSD, and Linux. LZO is also enabled in kernels on the Samsung Android devices to increase the kernel load speed and improve user experience. With its popularity increasing, this uh, LZO has been rewritten by many engineer firms, uh, both open and closed systems. These rewrites, however, have always been based on Oberhumer's core open source implementation. As a result, they all inherit a subtle integer overflow bug. Even LZ4, which is completely its own thing, but is based on the same algorithm, uh, inherited its own, but slightly changed uh, version of the bug. Uh, it talks about, you know, code reuse is a normal part of engineering and sometimes, or something we do every day, but it can be dangerous. By reusing code that is known to work well, especially in highly optimized algorithms, projects have become subject to the vulnerability in that uh, perceived trusted code. Uh, auditing highly optimized algorithms is a fragile endeavor. It's very easy to break these types of algorithms. 
Therefore, reused code that is highly specialized is often presumed safe because of its age, its proven efficiency, uh, and its fragility, which doesn't necessarily mean it is actually safe. Mm. Uh, this creates a sort of digital DNA, uh, a digital genetic footprint that can be traced over time. Although there are certainly many instances of refractory variants of LZO and LZ4, the following six implementations are available in open source software. There's Oberhumer's original LZO, there's the version in the Linux kernel, there's the version in libav and ffmpeg, um, then there's the Linux kernel version of LZ4 and the core LZ4 reference implementation. And you know, despite each implementation of these algorithms being notably different, each variant is almost in the exact same way. It's uh, it takes a if you take a look at the algorithm, it's easy to read uh, online, and they show in all variants of LZO and LZ4. The vulnerability occurs when processing a literal run. So this is a, a chunk of not compressed data, a bunch that wouldn't compress. It's like these are just literally these bytes. And if that runs too long, it can overflow a variable. Huh. That's bad, uh, yet subtle. And now, uh, in most cases, it turns out not to have a chance to actually break ZFS, but it was still worth fixing at the time. But, so the impact of raising dead code. Each variant of the LZO and LZ4 implementation is vulnerable in slightly different ways. The attacker must construct their malicious payload to fit that particular implementation. One payload uh, cannot be used to trigger the vulnerability on more than one implementation. Uh, because of a slightly different overflow requirements, state machine subtleties, and overflow checks that must be bypassed, even a worldwide denial service is not a simple task. And they talk about that and how some are vulnerable to even remote code execution uh, or just a denial service or an adjacent object overwrite. Mm. Uh, and so they talk about each different version and how it might be uh, impacted. Uh, in particular, they say LZ4, probably none of the attacks are actually um, practical on 64-bit, uh, but 32-bit was still a thing then and so on. And they said... So how to tell if you're vulnerable, if, you know, projects like LZO and LZ4, uh, the easiest way to identify whether your specific implementation is vulnerable is to determine the maximum chunk size that is passed to the decompression routine. If buffers of 16 megabytes or more can be passed to the LZO or LZ4 decompression routine in one call, then exploitation of the integer overflow is possible. For example, uh, ZFS by default constrains buffers to 128K, so even though they are vulnerable uh, in their implementation of LZ4, an attack is not possible without a second bug to bypass the buffer size constraints. However, we added large block support to ZFS, which allows blocks up to 16 megabytes, but not over. So right on the line there. <laughs> uh, and that's just because of a quirk in the ZFS on disk format. I think it was originally designed to be able to do up to 32 megabytes, but it turns out you can only do 32 megabytes minus 512 bytes. Uh, which means that the, the highest power of two you can get is 16 megabytes. Do you know how this was discovered? Was this like automatic uh, code checking or did someone stumble upon this or um, I was think, it seen in the wild? I think uh, somebody actually found the vulnerability and reported it because uh, they have all the details about that in the later part of the article. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is, uh, so security mouse, uh, lab mouse has reached out uh, and worked with each vendor in the vulnerable uh, algorithm uh, as of 
June 26, 2014, all O vendors have patches either available online or will later today. Uh, please update as soon as possible and so on. And it has a big list of people to thank, including uh, Jin Li from FreeBSD, uh, people oh. from FFmpeg and LibAV, uh, people from Linux and Google, uh, people from NASA, <laughs> hmm. uh, Dan McDonald from OmniTI for Illumos, uh, Debian Red Hat, OpenWall, the US CERT, Oracle, GE, uh, and so on and so on. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so they not only have to patch the log4j bug, but also this one. Well, <laughs> the this one's <laughs> mostly been patched since 2014. Yeah, um, oh, right. They should have it. It's an definitely worth right a now. read to see how it happens and mostly to just think about what other libraries do we have that maybe haven't changed in a long time, but you know, might turn out that everybody's had this same bug. You know, we've seen this kind of thing in like bugs in the TCV stack found years later uh, and so on. Yeah, yeah. And on some of these systems, we can't get to very easy nowadays. Yeah. Because we send like, them how off. do you do software updates on a <laughs> Mars rover that's been there for, you know, eight years now and maybe has not got much battery left? <laughs> they have more important things to do than patching software. Okay. Uh, very nice. Uh, so we go right into our news roundup this week. We have uh, FreeBSD on Slimbook, 14 months of updates. Uh, this is interesting because, uh, oh, this is, uh, oh yeah. Um, time flies when, dot, 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 other people are doing the work. Sometimes like that. Anyway, this is an update to an earlier post on the same blog, over 18 months old at this point, about FreeBSD on a Slimbook base 14. Uh, so this is in reverse. Yeah, this is proper chronological order. So in July 2020, uh, here's a quote. It's vaguely ironic that I'm writing this just as the new KDE Slimbook is announced with 8-core AMD Ryzen 4000 on board, which would presumably knock the socks off my older, even if it's only eight months or so, old laptop. Okay, unquote. It should go without saying that I like this machine. It's my daily driver or on-the-go work, which in the absence of travel due to COVID-19 means when I work in the living room rather in, uh, than in my office in the attic. Most of the time, the machine runs OpenSUSE, Tumbleweed with the recent KDE Plasma Plus applications on it. But personally, I'd be happier with just one OS for the bits I need to work. So while I was not paying attention, uh, or rather doing my usual mix of KDE, Calamari's and FreeBSD ports work, uh, thanks for all those, by the way, the FreeBSD kernel and DRMK mod devel port advanced to the point that 10th generation Intel graphics does work. Huzzah! Woohoo! Great work. So in March 2021, this is the current look on the machine. There's a screenshot. Uh, from not traveling, it's a, it suffered little in the way of wear and tear, but it's also didn't uh, got a thick layer of stickers that a laptop might otherwise accumulate. Still think it needs a pride sticker of some sort. Yeah. So then in September 2021, FreeBSD Foundation is the nonprofit that supports the FreeBSD community. Among other things, it's also sponsoring development of some critical parts of the operating system. There is a technology roadmap, uh, and on it, in the middle of 2021, there's an item for laptop users. Wi-Fi. Yeah, that's been a common problem, uh, a common complaint, uh, but now they're addressing it. So, quote here, for KDE readers, the FreeBSD Foundation is quite comparable to KDE uh, EV, which is a registered uh, and, uh, association, more like in the, in the German uh, 
jurisdiction in the kind of activities it supports but different in the size of its budget and it explicitly supports directed development so the wi-fi world here is sponsored to update the iwl driver modern intel wireless at a FreeBSD developer summit in brussels way back when a few years back a decision was made to be more pragmatic if there's working code from linux that can be used then shimming it into place in the FreeBSD world is generally okay that's just the realities of the relative size of the developer community kicking in. So Intel Wireless has plenty of work done in order to port, move, and shim things into the FreeBSD kernel. Björn Zeep particularly published patches at the beginning of September that apply to the development version of FreeBSD's kernel 14 current. So yeah, Björn Zeep has uh, been working with the FreeBSD Foundation to do that. And yeah, so they upgraded via source so that on the laptop and now have working Plasma Wayland and Intel Wireless. Cool. Then from October 2021, with Björn's work and other 14 current work, let's check out how the laptop as a whole works in FreeBSD today. Uh, I used this laptop at the end of August, which KDE Plasma Wayland, uh, with KDE Plasma Wayland, but now I realized that I hadn't done any graphics work since then. And since changing over to 14 current for Wi-Fi testing, I hadn't left the text console. FreeBSD package is pretty robust in these cases, though. It tells me a major OS upgrade has happened. Yes, it has. And that it should be bootstrapped and upgraded. Then he has a section on the actual Wi-Fi. So FreeBSD can build from source. This is particularly important when chasing current. And he has a uh, particular branch here which can be read as git revision 395d with Bjorn's patches so it's three weeks old at this point and the machine contains an intel wireless ac9560 160 megahertz chip and labeling on it has been weirdly inconsistent with linux lspci calling it various names over the past 14 months as well with Bjorn's work loading the kernel module which is if underscore iwl wi-fi uh, gives us a bit of information about attaching and giving it an ethernet address and such like yeah so he supposes this is reasonable then it's time to start the rest of the wi-fi stack like uh, netif start lan zero the details depend on configuration described in the wiki and below so this is not necessarily applicable for everyone okay but seems like he got it working uh setting it up in waps supplicant and such by hand Okay, December 2021. I didn't use the laptop with FreeBSD much this month. It's mostly my video call box with meet.kde.org, something I still have not set up correctly with my FreeBSD workstation. Wi-Fi tops out inside the house at 2.2 megabits per second. This is... That'd be bytes. Bytes, right. This <laughs> wouldn't be very fast. Right, 2.2 megabytes per second. Uh, it is reported as a 36 megabit this time. 802.11a connection in system tools. So that is not great, but a far cry from what it could be. KDE Plasma Wayland, which was working in September, is now broken. Hmm. It's not just my laptop. It's on my workstation, AMD GPU, and a spare machine Intel iGPU and laptop Intel iGPU as well. I have chatted a bit with Plasma developers, but the debugging is on me, unfortunately. So the takeaway here, he won't say anything about FreeBSD on laptops in general, but on this laptop, it manages acceptable, but no more than that. For now, it will keep running OpenSUSE, but just like the kids' laptops around here. <laughs> yeah, so this is again a snapshot of the development, and uh, Wi-Fi is being worked on. It's, it's difficult, it's tough work porting that, and if people can provide testing and uh, help rather than complaints then this is better than uh yeah, yeah complaint uh extra points for the password for his wi-fi being graph the bsd code oh nice yeah i <laughs> didn't see that <laughs> excellent 
yeah, the good guy is uh, still with me and he looks forward to more conferences in the future in what form or other. Okay, uh, next up is LRDB FreeBSD kernel core dump support by Moritz Systems. Yeah, uh, so Morris is being contracted by the FreeBSD Foundation to continue their work on modernizing LLDB to support FreeBSD. The primary goal of our contract is to bring kernel debugging uh, into LLDB. Uh, the complete project schedule is divided into six milestones, each taking approximately one month. Uh, and they're actually on step four right now, but step one was improve LLDB's compatibility with the GDB protocol, fixing LLDB implementation errors, implementing the missing packet types, and uh, except for the registers. Uh, step two was improving LODB compatibility with the GDB protocol and support the GDB style flexible register API. Step three was support for debugging via a serial port. Step four, which is where they are now, was uh, libkvm portable and support for debugging kernel core files with LODB on uh, AMD64 and ARM64 platforms, support for other platforms as time permits. Then going forward, step five will be support for debugging the running kernel on AMD64 and ARM64 and support for other platforms as time permits. And finally, uh, an extra month of KGDB work, uh, processing patches on LLDB reviews or miscellaneous tasks as time permits. Examples of miscellaneous tasks include access to extended systems with process information, starting processes via the shell, SIG info support, etc. This month, we have been working on support for the FreeBSD kernel core dump or VM cores. Uh, FreeBSD uses two VM core formats, the full memory dump that are is basically an ELF container and then mini dumps. Uh, the former format is misread by LLDB as a uh, regular process core dump and the latter is not currently supported at all. Our work consists of two parts. Firstly, forking FreeBSD's libkvm into a cross-platform core dump reading library and secondly, integrating it into LLDB. We have considered three possible uh, integration methods by doing an LLDB plugin, by using the external K or, uh, GDB remote protocol server, or explicit conversion of LLDB compatible ELF uh, core dump format. At this point, we're going to describe what kernel dumps are and how they differ from user space process dumps. Then we're going to uh, shortly discuss how they are saved uh, what the mini dump format looks like and how to read it. Afterwards, we're going to discuss the new FBSD VM core library and its integration into LLDB. Uh, so as I discussed in a previous uh, post about core dumps, is a tool for post-mortem debugging. Uh, so after the system crashes, you figure out why. However, an earlier article uh, was focused on core dumps for user space programs. This time we're discussing kernel core dumps or VM cores. Uh, kernel core dumps can be used to debug kernel bugs, in particular kernel panics. While regular core dumps capture the state of a specific program, a VM core captures the state of a whole system uh, as a context uh, to the kernel behavior. The FreeBSD handbook has a chapter describing the kernel debugging, and we're only going to cover the basics. Uh, but uh, FreeBSD currently has support for two major core dump formats. First is the full memory dump, that captures the entire contents of physical memory and stores them in an alpha container. And then there's the mini dump format that captures only the memory pages actually used by the kernel and uses its own custom container type. There's also the text dump. Uh, however, that's just some text and doesn't actually capture stuff from memory. And it's only intended for human consumption rather than uh, being input into a debugger like LLDB. Mm -hmm. uh, so normally core dumps are written when the kernel panics. This makes it important that the process be as simple as possible 
because you know you can't trust the kernel it just panicked so you need to be able to do this in a very basic uh <laughs> method the standard method of writing vm cores on freebsd involves uh using the swap space as temporary storage normally this means that the swap partition must be large enough to hold the whole core dump in the requested format the kernel writes the core dump into swap then you reboot and on boot an rc script will look at the swap detect that it contains a core dump and then with a full file system driver and a working kernel loaded be able to copy that to var crash and then uh, it does this before it enables swap so it doesn't get overwritten so you can manually trigger a core dump by running sysctl debug.kdb.panic equals one um, don't try this at work but sometimes it, sometimes you have a lot of memory and not as much swap you know it's very common nowadays to have you know 128 gigs of ram and only four or eight gigs of swap so that's where the mini dump format came from the mini dump format is the default format used for vm cores on modern freebsd versions the format aims to efficiently store a subset of the physical memory pages skipping those that are deemed inactive this is particularly useful in systems whose swap partitions are smaller than physical memory uh, especially now that physical memory can be competitive with the size of your small ssd you're probably booting the system from mm -hmm. uh, so they have a graphic here showing how mini will have a header and then the kernel message buffer so just what d message and so on then a bitmap that kind of shows what's in the dump and then a bitmap of memory and then the kernel page table directory and then a list of memory chunks and then they show how there are different versions of these there's uh, up to version 3 on amd 64 version 2 on ARM64, etc. Uh, you can note that there are a number of matching fields, mostly defining sizes of the common mini-dump elements. Uh, it talks about that, and then we talk about how you read the kernel core dump. Uh, user space program core dumps uh, use the ELF format. Uh, the contents of the program's virtual memory are written as PT underscore load segments, while the additional program state information is written into PT note segments. On the other hand, kernel core dumps contain contents of physical memory and a copy of the kernel message buffer, the D message. Rather than adding additional structures to the core dump format, additional state information such as thread state and register context have to be extracted from the kernel structures. Therefore, due to the use of physical memory addressing, virtual memory addresses need to be explicitly translated to physical memory addresses. So FreeBSD uses a KVM library derived from Solaris and uh, featured by other BSD derivatives as well. This library provides a consistent routine for working with kernel memory, both in the form of core dumps or directly uh, debugging dev slash mem, which is when you're debugging a running kernel. In addition to the basic routines for reading and writing, uh, in the case of live kernel memory and looking up symbols, it also provides a number of wrappers for accessing common kernel state information like process information, system load, and swap. The implementation of libkvm relies heavily on system headers of the FreeBSD system it is built on, as a result, its supports for core dumps from other architectures is limited, and the library itself, uh, in its FreeBSD version, is provided on FreeBSD only. Uh, whereas, you know, one of the advantages to LLDB is that you can debug across platforms, whether they be, you know, debugging your ARM thing from your x86, or, you know, debugging FreeBSD from Linux and so on. Hmm. Uh, so they have some examples there. So they wanted to create a portable VM core library. Um, they want it portable to different operating systems and support cross-architecture uh, processing of VM cores. So like we said, you'd be able to debug your ARM machine from your x86 laptop. 
and they wanted to have a clean API without obsolete or deprecated functions because, you know, the old libkvm has built up a lot of stuff over time. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so they described kind of how that works and then how they want to integrate FreeBSD's VM core support into LLDB. Uh, and again, they had the three different ways they could do that, writing an LLDB plugin, creating an external GDB uh, remote pro protocol server that then LLDB would talk to, or creating an LLDB trivial thing that will convert VM cores into ELF cores so that LLDB can just read them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they want to write a new process plugin for VM cores so they can dig into the details of a process and so on. And they have some links to the bits of that that have been merged upstream so far. At the start of our work, LLV lacked proper support for FreeBSD kernel VM cores. And developers and users wishing to debug kernel crashes had to use the KGDB fork of GDB. It was possible to open full memory dumps via LLDB, but it did not read the memory correctly, nor recognize kernel threads. Uh, and so there existed a proposed third-party tool to convert mini dumps into ELF cores, but it only addressed a part of the problem fixing only direct memory reads. Uh, the reference implementation of core dump file format reading was present in libkvm and was limited to running natively on FreeBSD. Uh, furthermore, the library had poor support for cross-architecture processing of core dumps. So we've created a cross-platform, cross-architecture replacement for libkvm's core dump support and called it libfbsd vm core. We have confirmed that our library builds correctly on FreeBSD, Linux, and NetBSD, and that it can open uh, core dumps for AMD64, ARM64, and i386 platforms. It does not require a custom resolver, although it supports one if it's desirable. Instead, it reuses libelf to perform the actual symbol resolution. We've uh, created a new FreeBSD kernel process plugin in LLDB, uh, which uses that libfbsd vm core in order to open kernel, dump, uh, kernel core dumps, both in full memory dump and mini dump formats. However, the former format also requires patching the existing ELF core plugin not to accept VM cores. Uh, the new plugin provides the ability to read kernel variables as well as inspect the backtrace and registers of a crashing kernel threat. Um, this is the next step uh, towards feature parity with uh, KGDB and LLDB, and therefore towards making it possible for FreeBSD developers and users to rely entirely on the permissively licensed LLVM toolchain instead of being stuck with GPL tools like GDB. Uh-huh, yeah. So, so still more work to go, but a lot of good progress there. Oh yeah, thanks to more systems. And the blog post contains a lot of cool graphics that illustrates and also uh, extracts from the code to see uh, what this is all about. Very nice. And the next article that we have is from Celine. You probably remember the interview that we did with her a couple of weeks ago. And not too long, uh, she has an article about Steam and OpenBSD on her blog. So there's a very common question she asks or writes within the OpenBSD community, mostly from newcomers. How can I install Steam on OpenBSD? The answer is, you can't. There is no way, this is impossible, period. And so going a bit more into detail in the why, Steam is a closed source program. While it's now also available on Linux, doesn't mean it's on Open, it's running on OpenBSD. The Linux Steam version is compiled for Linux and without the sources, we can't port it on OpenBSD. Even if Steam was able to be installed and could be launched, games are not made for OpenBSD and wouldn't work either. On FreeBSD, it may be possible to install Windows Steam using Wine, but Wine is not available on OpenBSD because it requires some specific kernel memory management we don't want to implement for security reasons. 
And here she adds, I don't have the whole story. Uh, but FreeBSD also has a Linux compatibility mode to run Linux binaries, allowing to use programs compiled for Linux. This Linux emulation layer has been dropped in OpenBSD a few years ago because it was old and unmaintained, bringing more issues than helping. So you can't install Steam or use it on OpenBSD. If you need Steam, use a supported operating system. And she wanted to make an article about this in hopes that her text will be well referenced within search engines to help people looking for Steam on OpenBSD by giving them a reliable answer. Maybe BSD now helps a little bit, linking to your blog. Yeah, I know people were using uh, the Windows Steam on FreeBSD in the past. Uh, and I know people definitely expressed interest in using the Linux Steam on FreeBSD with the Linux emulation layer. although. I kind of agree with Celine here. Even if you get it working, the games weren't meant for it, and you're just going to run into trouble frequently. Yeah, it's it's like you're at the end boss, and OpenBSD decides uh, not to work Less that <laughs> anymore. That you decide to try a different <laughs> game, and it won't start. But. Yeah, it's it's very specific to each individual game. So it's and it also needs people to work and make this maintainable. So it's not OpenBSD's primary focus. So let them focus on security, which is all fine and good, and do the gaming somewhere else. Uh, we have some cool bits about OpenBSD in the Beastie Bits, though. Uh, first of all, OpenSSH agent restriction has been implemented into OpenSSH by Damien Miller. And he notes on social media that he has committed it, uh, uh, the changes which allow control over the SSH-agent utility, the key forwarding based on destination host and forwarding path. So you can say on this host, I only want to allow ED25519 and on this other host, I'm a bit more lenient. I can also work with uh, RSA, whatever you have. Uh, so it's, you can it's more about decide. the keys I have loaded in my key agent. I only want oh, to right. send them to the right person. Uh, so in their example ah, yes. here, you can when you do SSH-add on a key, you can specify the hosts of uh, that you're willing to send it to. So you can say, I only want to include or send this key to, you know, Perseus at uh, cdis.example.org. And oh. Uh, oh, right. And then you can use the uh, angle bracket character to allow jump hosts. So I only want to allow, I want to forward my agent socket through cdis.example.org and then allow these certain hosts, but not every host. So you can basically not have to say, you know, I don't trust this socket being passed to every host I connect to. I, here's, you know, my machines where it'll be convenient to pass my socket through and be able to have access to my loaded SSH keys. But don't do that when I randomly SSH into uh, a temporary Amazon host or something, <laughs> allowing you to uh, do it. And this is uh, the limitations of this, though, is that a protocol extension is required. The most immediate practical uh, consideration is that this feature requires protocol extensions in SSH agent and SSH add, SSH and SSHD uh, for most participating hosts. The requirements to run an updated SSH agent, SSH and SSH add is fairly obvious. Older versions simply don't support the feature, but the need to run an updated SSH server is less obvious. The reasons are discussed below in uh, more detail. So it'll be a while before you can probably be using this uh, very widely unless you control all of the hosts um, that you're deploying this on and you know have updated them to the latest uh, OpenSSH 8.9. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then there needs to be a new OpenSSH mastery book written and you know how this goes. Um. <laughs> and then just note that uh, destinations are more trustworthy than paths. And then, you know, uh, the protocol extension assumes a particular sequence of operations and the restrictions only work for user authentication. 
Uh, destination restrictions and SSH agents strongly depend on the agent being able to parse data being signed and the contents having all of the information needed to compare against the restrictions listed for a given key. SSH user authentication requests from a, uh, have a format that meet these requirements, but other uses of the agent protocol might not. Uh, in particular, it is currently not possible to use destination restricted keys for SSH signatures by SSH keygen, the CA operations, etc. Mm. But okay. it has all the details about how it works and how it's fail safe. Yeah. Uh, they also talk about uh, some alternative considerations, like maybe having separate agent sockets for different things or changes to the agent protocol only so that wouldn't require server-side support and what the problems with those are. Yep. And we'll stay on undeadly.org for a little while because the other article there that we cover is OpenBSD's Clang has upgraded to version 13. So they say after much preparatory work in base and ports, Clang has been upgraded to version 13.0.0 on the relevant platforms and Patrick Wilt, which is Patrick at, has made the commits. Great. Always good to have modern compilers uh, on our favorite BSDs. Good. Last but not least, we have a bunch of tools, uh, cool but obscure X11 tools. It's a long list and they have been tested or tried out on uh, FreeBSD, although they are kind of OS independent or at least Unix independent because they're X11 based. So all X11 running can, uh, or systems running X11 can run these. So there's a 3D Pong, there's Angband, which is a roguelike game. Uh, then there's some, just, just display a clock for you or a calculator for various scientific computing that you're doing or the famous glx gears that you test to uh see how much your graphics adapter can render yeah and there's one here battalion is a 3d game from 1994 originally written for the silicon graphics indie unix workstation the player controls a monster to blow up a city <laughs> uh, depending <laughs> on your perception the controls are a little awkward you may want to change uh, the camera with keys one two three four and use the mouse to rotate and move and it's like there's fighter jets and helicopters and so on or if you're more in the construction type if you want to build up the city first then run uh, the micropolis which is an open source version of the famous computer game sim city so then you can run over it with godzilla or whatever there's plenty of other tools there so we refer you to the show notes because the list is long and you may have seen some of those already but some are uh some of them were new to me at least sun clock is super useful uh just <laughs> yeah. to tell is the sun up in the play the, for the person i'm trying to reach at the moment hmm Ooh, X star role. That's cool. It's a simple demonstration program for X11. So you have the uh, introduction for Star Wars movies scrolling up in, in yellow on uh, a star field. So there you can say, <laughs> yeah, what kind of messages you want to scroll up there. That's kind of cool. And yeah, very nice tools all around. So definitely something to check out. Uh, this used to be the part where we talk about your questions and comments about this uh, show, anything about BSDs you might have to ask us, but nothing yet because it's the new year. People are still on holiday sometimes and we don't get enough feedback. So if you have a question for us for future episodes like this, feedback at bsdnow.tv is your email address to send us these. Well, it's our email address, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the email address we set up for you to use right um so send this to us and then we'll have something more in future episodes at this exact spot 
So we'd say thank you for listening to this episode and we'll be back with another one next week for you. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Tarsnap. Uh, so this week's episode was brought to you by them. You should head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD now. And, you know, a great New Year's resolution is to start doing backups. Uh, and if you're going to do backups, you want them to be secure and private. And the only way to ensure that is with Tarsnap because you get the source code for the client uh, and you can make sure it does exactly what it says on the tin. And it's page ago, uh, so just go over to tarsnap.com, uh, deposit a few dollars, start doing backups, uh, and you know, you'll have accomplished your New Year's resolution. Exactly, yeah. Although at this point, <laughs> but, it'll, that'll be like two weeks ago by the time you hear this. Yeah, but. well, it's still valid. It's still January. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's not quite January yet when we're recording this. Well, yeah, this so we're looking now. ahead a little bit. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but good in this regard. All right, till next time. <laughs>